Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, if you haven't yet subscribed to Room for Two, this is your personal invitation to do so. Listening to Room for Two will help you see how to take the concepts I talk about in podcast episodes like this one, as well as my online courses, and apply them to your own life and relationships. Listening to other couples work with me will help you see that you're not alone in your struggles and will show you what you can do to create change. Click the link in our show notes to learn more about subscribing. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Bread and Butter Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you back, and I'm really, really thrilled to be publishing this episode. Um, It's one that I've been excited about for a really long time. Um, We are talking about modesty culture today. I say we because I have a really incredible guest today, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She is a sexuality and relationships counselor with a platform that really has changed a lot of lives, and I'm so grateful for her team and her generosity to come spend time with us on the podcast today. So um, for anyone interested, I will be linking her courses in the show notes below if you're wanting to check that out or check her out later. Um, But for now, on with the show. Jennifer is a relationship and sexuality educator and a coach. Um, She's a licensed clinical professional counselor. She's a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. Um, So you wrote your dissertation on LDS women and sexuality, right? Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, You've taught college level courses. Um, You teach online relationship and sexuality courses. So you have all of these amazing resources out there. Um, And Besides that, one of the main reasons that I was so drawn to your work um, was because we practice the same faith. So we're both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, with that comes a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word issues, but kind of some some complications when it comes to sexuality and and those kind of things. I mean, it's not just our religion. It's, you know, I would say generally just a conservative yeah. stance. Um, and so I've loved your work there. I grew up as a very, I struggled with scrupulosity my whole life. And so when I found your work, I was like, this, this makes so much more sense. And as I've grown up and as I've matured, it's kind of changed my view and made my practice of my faith and my religion that much sweeter. It hasn't taken away anything, which I think makes you unique. Um, and I've just so appreciated that. So thank you. Yeah, great. Great. You're welcome. I'm happy to hear it. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just really happy that it's resonated and been helpful for you for sorting out your own faith and relationship to sexuality. So, so the topic that we're going to talk about mainly today that I would love to touch on, um, is actually modesty. So modesty, I think right now really packs a punch I think there are a lot of women who seem to be kind of fed up with modesty. Um, Maybe they feel like they've been judged in the past or they feel like it is, you know, a controlling mechanism from someone with more power than they feel they have. Um, And so you have this beautiful way of talking about modesty that is not about hemlines. It's not about, it's not even about rules. Um, it's, It's more of a pure definition. So I would love if you would just start us off with kind of your definition of modesty kind of at its core? I don't often talk about it in the way you just asked the question, so I'll do my best. But I think, you know, there's an idea at the root of it, which is like moderation. And we very quickly link modesty to um, clothing. But if you think about it in terms of why modesty is generally a virtue is that you're not going around bragging, flaunting, you know, let's take it in the frame of wealth to be modest about wealth is you don't have to be ashamed of having resources, but you don't want, so you don't, it's not a shame-based principle. It's about being considerate and respectful about the good fortune you have, but being respectful and kind to others. You're not flaunting it. You're not using it to wield power over other people or to make them feel small or to make them feel beholden to you. 
you're respectful of others and yourself, even if you have something of value. And so I think we can often, the way that the reason why people are fed up often with the concept of modesty is because of exactly what you're saying is that it's often a tool to suppress female sexuality, to make women feel responsible for men's sexuality. It's a kind of code for sex makes us nervous and we're anxious about it. So we're going to shame you and your sexuality. (laughs) So it's often much more um, anxiety laden and fear-based and is really unhelpful for integrating our sexuality. But But so modesty, in my view, in the purest definition, is not about shame around sexuality. It's a way of being respectful towards a cherished reality respectful of oneself and others. And so that should define how you relate to it. And that would affect clothing choices among other choices, but is not about controlling others. It's about controlling who you are relative to this amazing thing of one's sexuality. Exactly. I love that. And When you say like respect, one thing that I would love for you to touch on, that's one of my favorite things that you teach is that modesty doesn't need to be taught in reference to men, even though it it often is. And when I say taught, what I mean is taught to women in reference of men. Um, That's certainly the way that I experienced it growing up Um, by very well-meaning, kind people, often other women um, but you know, you get older and you're like, it, that doesn't make sense. Yes. And you know, I feel like when I was 14, 15, I was like, sure, sure. You know, that's fine. Yep. Whatever. You know, mm. all the skirts I have are to my knees, <laughs> my knees right. anyway. I'm not really fighting anyone on anything. Yeah. Not that that was what it was about anyway, but you know, you get older and you can, I learned some of these more like feminine ideals. And I was like, I, yeah. I have such an issue with this now. Yes, and exactly. It's not the way that I want to teach my daughter. So how would you kind of detach modesty from keeping men safe? Yeah, exactly. So I, you're, you're right on point that there's often messages within the message that are really the problem. So um, the, the message often in the modesty rhetoric is the idea that men's sexuality is the real deal. Women's sexuality is there in reference to men's sexuality. So because women aren't that sexual, but they bring out sexual feelings in men and we're really afraid of sexuality, women have to suppress their beauty, their sexuality, their attractiveness in order to keep men pure and keep women safe. And this is a problematic idea on many levels. And if, you know, for, first of all, if you look at what, what my dissertation was looking at is sexual agency in Latter-day Saint women. And there was a subsection of the people I interviewed who really did have high levels of agency. And what I mean by that is they didn't buy into these messages and they saw sexuality as a good thing. They felt good about the fact that they were sexual And actually, surprisingly, perhaps they were the most likely to actually abide the law of chastity standard because it was really, but it was coming from this self-defining place, coming from a place of this is what I want. I want, I want committed sexuality, but it wasn't about trying to manage men or prove their desirability or be the unlicked cupcake or anything. It wasn't about proving themselves. It was to anyone else. It was about aligning themselves with what they believed. But most of the people I interviewed had inherited all of these messages that were really damaging to their ability to be at peace with themselves, with sexuality, and to see sexuality as a legitimate thing for them. And the reason is because, as you're saying, it's not that I wanted to wear short skirts, so I didn't really think much of it. But then as I got older, I saw that there was all these kind of dismissive messages. So if you to back up because I I forgot to say this part. When you look at sort of overt patriarchal systems, you know, some of, uh, you know, sects of Islam can be very 
they literally are covering up women's sexuality entirely in the form of a burqa, or they're removing the clitoris and a clitoridectomy because the idea is women should not have power. I mean, sorry, they should not have sexual desire because it gives them a power that makes them dangerous or dangerous to our, um, to our sense of control as men. Therefore, we have to eradicate your sexuality. Now, of course, in a lot of conservative Christian culture, there is a psychological version of this, right? And it's not just a Latter-day Saint issue. It, it's just about we have a stricter standard around sexuality. And a lot of times, well-meaning people make the target women's sexuality. You're the temptress. You're the, the attractive one. You're bringing up feelings that we men should not be having. Therefore, you're the problem. And so it becomes easy to have a message that is about snuffing and um, kind of suppressing a nat the natural sexuality of a woman and linking it to being good. And of course, that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to really integrate one's sexuality and be able to be capable of an intimate marriage. But it also interferes with men integrating their sexuality. And I can say more about that, but it, it's a problematic message for men also because it puts a responsibility onto women that men, that is men's, and that men need to develop a capacity within to be desirable, to be trustworthy, and to not be afraid of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love what you're saying because, you know, you mentioned that like as you get older, as you, you know, as marriage kind of like comes onto your brain, you're thinking about marriage. Um, I've been married for two years. I have a lot of friends who are dating, who are, you know, my age, a little older, a little younger, and they have these, you know, dating relationships. And at the same time, I've had lots of conversations with friends where modesty has become a real kind of thorn in their side, but, you know, not because it's inherently wrong, because I think at its core, it's empowering and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but I do feel that this kind of age where you are starting to think about marriage and intimacy and all of these things, um, I have noticed, um, girls saying things like, well, if I dress like this, you know, maybe, this certain kind of guy won't want me. Or I've, I've heard the narrative over and over of like, be what you'd like to attract. And that's great. That's a great idea. But it often seems to really mean don't, don't dress quote unquote immodestly because guys don't want girls like that. I would love if you would kind of speak to that. You mentioned kind of some of that good girl idea. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I think yeah, it is hard to feel good about some of those messages in the message, which, and there's a big range in terms of how families orient to this, how people heard the messages. That was one thing that was really clear in my dissertation research. But yeah, there are a lot of people who hear the message, which is, you know, you earn a certain kind of guy by being, you know, modest is hottest. That's the idea, you know, like you're going to earn a certain kind of guy by the way you dress because they don't want to be with a, you know, a seductive or sexually loose woman. And so you will lose your value. And that's um, a way of thinking that some people have embraced, even if they don't realize it and promote. And um, now there is, the thing is, is that often very true ideas and very false ideas sit side by side. They sound almost the same, but there's a different meaning in it. And so it is also true that when you get dressed, you are giving a message about how you feel about yourself, about who you are. You are communicating always something about who you are. And so I think it's valuable to think about, you know, how do I want to be in the world? What is the message I want to give about how I feel about myself, how I relate to my sexuality, how I relate to others? I think being thoughtful and deliberate and self-respecting matters. But that's different than the idea of you need to suppress your sexuality if you're going to get a good guy because he only wants the 
the untouched flower, you know, <laughs> right? That message of conditionality and earning is a much more objectified and harmful message about what it is to be a female. And so there are ways to embrace a concept of respect and respect of sexuality that has modesty as a, as a core idea without turning it into this idea that you are responsible for men's thoughts and you have to earn your desirability. So many women I worked with and interviewed and so on definitely had this feeling like even if they were sexually coerced or perpetrated against that their value had gone down because they were now not untarnished um, or messages. I remember hearing at BYU in one of my Sunday school classes in my freshman year was if you are, you know, someone is going to rape you, it's better to leap from the car and die virtuous, right? <laughs> like, this is terrible. You're lying I, to me. That is insane. Yeah, that was a, oh an object lesson that, you know, I think it was taught then a little bit. This is like 1986 oh or something. I remember just buying that idea. And then I remember coming home and saying something to my sister-in-law about it. And she's like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, her. oh, yeah. <laughs> but that was sort of this idea, like to risk your life for your virtue. Well, the thing is, if someone perpetrates against you, you haven't lost your virtue. I mean, your virtue is a moral quality. It's about how you relate to the good in the world and, and goodness as a concept. So anyway, so we have really linked women's value to their sexlessness, which of course makes it very difficult for women to then embrace sexuality. A lot of women talked about their wedding night or their first sexual experience as being a sense of loss for them. The loss of an identity, the loss of a sense of being kind of untouched, not a new beginning, not a stepping into a deeper part of being human. So those messages are highly problematic. Um, but I, again, at some point it would be good to talk about, I think the male problematic version of this as well because it also teaches men to objectify women and to not also take responsibility for their sexuality. Well, and it, like, let's just jump right into that. So from like a men's, I mean, I can't say men's perspective because I am a woman, but I, I love the idea too, and I've heard you speak to this, um, that a lot of men feel uncomfortable noticing a woman's beauty, noticing her body, whatever, you know, maybe she's wearing something that he thinks is particularly attractive on her. Um, and I'm not saying that it's coming from a good place, but it almost is because they want to be a good man. You know, they, they don't want to have these kind of, you know, quote unquote, sinful feelings, or they don't want to, you know, lust after a woman with their eyes and, you know, all of these ideals that we've been taught. And, and so I think sometimes modesty feels like an attack maybe yes. on them where they're like, exactly. I, it does. I just want to be a good guy. Right. And like, here you are dressed like that. And how can I be good if you're dressed like that? That kind of thing. Yeah. So it actually drives contempt towards the woman for her attractiveness, for her sexuality, and because she's inducing thoughts or feelings in you that you're not supposed to have. And so, of course, it could be easy to feel shaming and angry at a woman whose attractiveness is getting the better of you, right? So the part of the problem is that we vilify sexual desire and arousal. And we, we can't do that because it's just part of being human. And so while we grant to men that sexual desire is normal, I think we, we actually make it more problematic for femininity. Like women feel more like they shouldn't have it at all. Where men feel like, okay, well, they have it because that's part of being male, but it's going to destroy your spirituality. It's going to alienate you from God and so on. And so especially if you're a scrupulous male, you can feel bombarded by the sexuality around you if you're not supposed to have those thoughts and feelings. I think it's the wrong message. I think a more proper message is of course you're going to have the thoughts and feelings. You know, like if you're if you're in a normal trajectory of development, adolescence, you're going to be even at times bombarded with thoughts and feelings, right? That's part of being an adolescent. And part of learning how to be an adult is how do you handle yourself in the face of the feelings? It's not 
suppressing or feeling something's wrong because you have them, but how do I handle myself in the face of the thought and feeling? That's an incredibly important skill for learning how to really integrate sensuality, desire. This is true with food. This is true with sex. This is true with any pleasure is that if you either indulge or suppress, you will always be a prisoner of your sensual desire. Mm -hmm. And so it's not teaching men to suppress it. It's to handle it. Sex is a good thing. Your desires are a good thing. But you must, if you're going to be a respect-worthy man, you must be respectful of the attractive people around you. You must see them as human beings first. It's okay to have feelings, but how you handle yourself in the face of those feelings will define whether you're a boy or a man. And so to be a man is not to shame yourself, but to handle yourself. I love that. And it's something that I've thought a lot about, you know, thinking about having kids someday and talking to my sons and talking to my daughters. And I love that thought because frankly, if, if my kids are anything like me, they will be highly yeah. <laughs> anxious yeah. about these things unless it's taught in maybe a different way. Yes. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting, if, if we're kind of talking about like the dating early marriage kind of time of life, which is kind of my main audience. Yes. Um, I do think that there is kind of a struggle sometimes where, you know, maybe a girl does feel like those are great. You know, I, I do feel empowered within my own right to be who I am and dress the way I feel most yes. comfortable. And, but yes. I think there is kind of sometimes this narrative where a man may feel like it is his right or mm -hmm. yes. job to say like, oh, you know, I actually would really appreciate if you didn't wear yeah. X, Y, or Z. And in that space, what would you say to a girl whose boyfriend says something to the effect of, eh, not really my thing? Like, is is that his right to just be like, yeah, not my favorite? Or how would what would you say to them? Okay, so I think first there's perhaps a difference between if you're dating someone versus a stranger, there was like some things that sometimes got some media attention where like a student at BYU would write a note to a stranger because her, you know, book bag is cutting her across the breasts and it was drawing attention or she's wearing a t-shirt that's, you know, because she's large breasted was more problematic for him. And it sort of says a lot that he thought the next right thing to do was to tell her to dress differently and to handle himself, right? And it's one thing if this woman was like dressing provocatively, trying to, um, you know, get men's attention at the library. I'm not saying that he should still write anything, but that, that's, that would be a different reality than a woman who's just in a t-shirt who happens to be large breasted at the library that the guy can't handle. Um, that's, that's a very telling thing that he thinks it's the right thing to do. Um, and so we definitely see some of that in the culture, right? That the woman has to be handled or managed rather than the man manages himself, manages his, manages how he relates to sexuality. Now, a lot of people feel out of, a lot of men feel out of control with their sexuality. And so they might be saying or thinking when I'm saying this, well, give us a break. Like it's, it's hard to be a man being bombarded with all this visually attractive reality, but that's still, you know, a lot of times the reason why it's difficult for people is because it's been shamed for them so much. And so they're terrified of it. They're afraid of the sexual feelings and in their sort of a desire or fear of it, it becomes actually more problematic. I had a client who um, was looking at porn uh, somewhat regularly hiding it from his wife. He came forward about it to his wife. And then he started a, a, a treatment program. And the approach of the program was to see sexual desire as the problem. So there was like, you know, something like there's little evil sex chemicals and they had little Satan horns on them and so on. You know, the idea that the desire is the problem, the, the paradox of it all was that it actually got worse for him because anytime he was walking down a street and he knew a woman was walking the other way, he would be anxious about the sexual feelings he was going to have and so on, which made him be more preoccupied 
less able to handle it rather than, of course, I'm going to feel feelings. Of course, I'm going to see women that are attractive. Who do I want to be in the face of that? Do I want to be run around by every feeling I have? Or do I want to be somebody that I respect and respect that woman and handle myself? You know, of course, I'm going to have feelings, but that that's different than the choices I make. So that's that bombardment idea is it's still mine to handle because I'm ultimately the architect of my life. And I ultimately have to decide who I'm going to be in the face of sometimes even compelling sexual feelings, just like we would have to be in terms of compelling desire for food or something else. Like anything, anything. I have to assert who I'm going to be. If I'm going to be at peace, the idea of a boyfriend, girlfriend idea. I mean, it depends a little bit. If it's like, if this is a, a religious couple that wants to get to marriage, you know, and not have sex in there. And, and he were to say, it is so hard for me because I'm so attracted to you that when you wear that, it's just hard for me like, yeah, yeah. because you are so attractive. I, I, that's a little different than it's yours to solve yours to yeah. handle. Or if, you, I don't want you to be that kind of person. That kind yeah, that's a different message too. If it's yeah. just like, like have mercy, you're so attractive. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a little different idea. I, I'm not. I don't even know that one needs to say that. But it's. But the 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 important point is: is this about me managing who I am? Um, and I respect your desirability and your sexuality, and have a lot of you know you know, I see you as my equal, or do I think you have to help me handle this? There's, there's way too much of that, you know, like dress modestly. So you don't create a problem in the boys and that you're not, you know, walking pornography, that idea, or like you, I see married women whose husbands have had issues with porn. And then they feel like, well, I can't do, I can't let go sexually because then he might, we might go places where we shouldn't go. So yeah. I have to be restrained and I have to be the one, in control. Yeah. And that's just a message that works against men and women because each is trying to control things that aren't their job. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and kind of digging into that, I, you know, like I said, I, I have had conversations with friends um, my age. How would you, how would you advise someone who is maybe kind of, they're kind of questioning maybe some, narratives that they've been brought up with, um, they're feeling unsure. They want to live their faith, right? They want to be assured, you know what I mean? But they, they also have these questions and they have these fears. And I think a lot of times that is perceived as weakness, maybe even a lack of maturity. I've yes, seen like, absolutely. oh, well, they, you know, they just want attention. They're just, they're immature. They'll grow out of it. And so I think sometimes there's this stigma where you're like, I'm just going to put my head down. Like, I'm just going to put my head down. It doesn't matter that much, but it, I will say that it just keeps coming up. If you, if you push it down, these questions and concerns that you have, they come back. And what would you say to someone who is kind of tussling with, tussling with this idea of like, am I just immature? Am I lacking faith? You know, why do these things that I was taught as a kid that made perfect sense then, because you're a kid, why do they not make sense now? And how would you advise them to kind of just keep going, keep pushing? Well, how to say it like that would be for me, what normal development is that Mm -hmm. we are, when we're in cognitive, moral and relational development, we are moving in from equilibrium into disequilibrium with thoughts and ideas that we've had in the past. And that doesn't mean that they are all 100% wrong. Um, Sometimes sometimes we have ideas that are 100% wrong, but oftentimes we saw things as a child and we learned them as a child, right? But we need to grow into a more mature way of thinking. And so that's what I was saying earlier. Like there's a lot of times untrue ideas and true ideas that look almost identical, but you see them from a different vantage point. And they actually account for more truth. So, you know, the idea that, there, for example, there's a lot of people that I think um, talk as if any repression of sexuality, any inhibition um, of sexuality is the same thing as repression and shame. 
um, I don't know, actually didn't mean to say repression initially, like any kind of sublimation or inhibition of sexuality is the same thing as repression and shame. And, and I think that's just a, um, it's too simple minded, right? Like we have to in, a, in society learn on some level how to inhibit or regulate our impulses, regulate our sexuality, right? You, everybody does it all the time except for people that go to jail. That is to say, yeah. meaning, you know, you, you are in, you yeah. might get in an elevator, think someone's attractive, but you you inhibit because you don't, you don't want to leer that person or you, you want to basically disconnect that attraction um, for the respect for them and your self-respect. We do that kind of thing all the time. The, the problem is if we, in our efforts to, grow into people capable of regulating our desires, we are overly shaming. But we don't have to throw away the baby with the bathwater. We don't have to, you know, yes, like part of what modesty is, is to cherish something and to protect it. That's what gives it value. Like, I don't want to share my body with the whole world. I am in a way guarding something as a form of self-respect and respecting a certain kind of relationship that I want to have with a special other, that person, my you know, future spouse. And so it can definitely be an act of self-respect. Now you can use modesty as an act of shame and self-hatred and self-contempt. But the question is, how are you relating to the idea? Is it about you know, so much of life is in constricting our choices, we actually open up our life. And that's some of the paradox. The idea that to say no to anything is to be, you know, is somehow to live in a repressed state is just naive. I love that idea. And I love that, like, because I do feel sometimes that, especially media that I've noticed is very much like to be, like you said, inhibited at all in any form is wrong you're repressed and I think that is just as that takes away your agency just as much I feel like like you said like don't let's not throw away the baby with the bathwater. you know use the example of you said of like eating and food I can eat whatever I want right like I could eat you know whatever any number of things all day long but I do choose not to because you know I do want to get enough fiber and vitamins and all these other things and I love that idea of approaching modesty in that way of no, this is mine. And of course I choose to care for it and be aware of it and do with it what I would like, you know, of course I do. Right. It's like, what, what actually blesses your life? So I think food's a perfect metaphor because sure. I could eat anything. I could eat all day long, pure brownies, you know, with chocolate sauce all day long. (laughs) Would I feel free? Would I be happy? Like, no, you know, so you can easily, are you free to? Yes. But does it actually make your life richer, more expanded? That's the tricky thing. You know, there's a lot of things in life that you can just say, I'm just never going to do that. And your life will be better for it, right? That there's plenty of things you can just never even go towards, but sex and food is really not one. (laughs) Those are both things that you have to find how do I relate to this in a way that it makes my life better? And moderation is always a part of it and self-regulation towards a desired end. I want to live healthfully. I want to be at peace in my skin and peace in my body. What does that mean for how I relate to food and my choices and so on? So those are really important to be clear that it's going to require um, a kind of self-regulated response to create a good life around this. I love that. Well, and that kind of just leads into my next, we kind of covered it, but like, I think that leads us to the possibility of approaching modesty from a place of empowerment and not a place of compliance. Because I think sometimes it's kind of taught in a compliant way and no one, no one wants to feel compliant to something that they don't hold any truth with, right? Like no one, absolutely, absolutely. no one wants that. And you know, we, we all start out in a compliance frame that is obedience. If you want to put it in, it's the first law of heaven, as in it's the beginning. We are often when we are very young, just borrowing the rules of our culture. 
and often saying, if I want to belong here, if I want to be seen as a legitimate female or a legitimate male or whatever, I need to go with these rules. So I'm going to obey to belong. Okay. A lot, and we all do that up to a certain point, but to really be free, to really be at peace, to really become more capable of moral agency, right? And sexual agency and intimacy, you have to start stepping into a self-authoring position. That is to say, what do these ideas mean to me? The women in my dissertation research all made that shift inside of themselves. Okay, here's a standard out there, an idea. What does it mean to me? Who am I going to be relative to this? And they weren't that preoccupied with what other people thought they should be doing. They were concerned with what they believed, with what they thought they should be doing. It wasn't a defiant position. It was an honest position. And so that was what allowed them to say, you know, I'm going to be very careful in how much I engage physically with people before I get married. Not because sex is bad, but because literally I believe sex is good and I want to preserve it for this other, but because it was self-defined, it didn't have the repressive shaming element. When it's external, I've got to do it or no man's going to want me. I've got to do it or God is going to hate me. You know, that kind of meaning really wreaks havoc on our souls and our psyches and our ability to be at peace with ourselves. One thing that I would love to touch on is, you know, we've talked about modesty in reference to men. I would love to talk about modesty you know, most of my audience is female. Um, I, I've often noticed kind of this strange phenomenon where women who they have felt repressed in their sexuality or any number of things, but often I've noticed that they are also the policing other women and they're policing other women's choices and what they choose to wear. And I've noticed it become rampant. And I, I think it's just kind of another kind of icky way to divide women, you know, and I would love for you to speak to that because, you know, a lot of times the narrative is like, well, this is how I grew up and, you know, I just want, you know, I want that woman to be safe or I want her to res be respectful and don't shame, you know, womanhood like that. And, you know, all these, it can get ugly, right? But I have noticed that and it's the most odd thing to me. I'm like, why? Why is it that sometimes I feel like the people judging women the most are women? Like, why Why is that happening? Yeah, I, I don't know completely, of course, but I think that, so first of all, I think if people have in an obedience frame or a compliance frame done things that they have hoped would give them a reward, give them favor, give them, you know, that they will sometimes resent people who don't seem to be going along with the same system. It's like, look, I never got a career. Who are you to get one? You know, that kind of thing. Like you should be doing what we've been told we should do because I feel anxious about my own choices. Right. Another reason is if you learn the idea that men ultimately want, you know, the immodestly dressed woman, then you can see her as a threat to your exactly. security, right? So yeah. a threat to your desirability. So the contempt you can feel towards her is a competitive one. Mm -hmm. And so you got to bring her into line so she doesn't, you know, take away that power. You know, I think when we, women can often be unkind to women in patriarchal structures. And what I mean by that is like, if you're sort of looking to the men as your measurement, then you may have a hard time actually being kind to your fellow competitors for that validation, that attention. Mm -hmm. If you're I more self-directed and you're more self-defining, um, then you are not going to see you are more able to hold on to who you are and you're clear I'm going to look for a man that will know me and value me and I don't need to I'm not going to compete in a sense for something outside of me you become more able to allow people their their choices and for you to get clear and comfortable with your own on the opposite side I had 
questions, you know, people knew that I was going to interview. I had questions like, well, what do I do when it's a parent? What do I do when it's a parent that, you know, let's say I'm wearing a swimsuit that I feel comfortable in, shorts that I feel comfortable in, um, I feel modest, and they feel like it's not okay. And at this point, you know, we're assuming that these are all adults, right? So these aren't kids that you have control over their wardrobe to an extent. Um, these are adults. Yeah. Well, then there's kind of a larger problem there in the sense that if an, a parent is telling an adult child, you know, what to do or shaming them or pressuring them, like you, you know, you should have your, you should be like X, Y, and Z. That is a problematic position. Meaning it's not going to go well if that continues. <laughs> because listen, young adults still need input. It's not like they've got everything all worked out. However, I think for the relationship to go well, there has to be a basic respect of adult to adult, even if it's your child. And that you are relating to them as an adult. Now, they, you may say, like, the adult child whose parent is saying, I don't think you should wear that swimsuit. You know, it's fair enough to say, well, tell me, tell me what your concern is, because I'm willing to think about if I agree with that or if I'm missing something. But I think it's important as an adult to be careful about complying to earn your parents' favor. It's a different thing to say, okay, I actually agree with what my parent's saying, or I think that's a fair point. And I, but that's then you deciding that you believe it's the right thing. So you can understand your parents' point of view, but when parents are trying too hard to get you to be who they think you should be, even as an adult, you're going to, you're, it's enmeshed. It's too psychologically entangled and interferes with true adulthood. Well, and I feel like I love that you bring up that I do think converse, that doesn't mean that conversations can't be had, right. you know, conversations should exactly. never just be off the table and no. on the same vein, you know, let's say the parent is like, oh, you know, why, why are you wearing that swimsuit? They may have a point, you know, maybe that is a, Absolutely. You know, parents have, you know, 30 or so years, ex you know, experience on us. Okay. So they may well have perspectives and understanding that we would benefit from. But I think that basic respect has to genuinely be there because even though there's choices that my young adult kids make that make me a little worried, or I'm like, I'm not sure that's going to go well for them or whatever. There's this, at least when I'm being a good parent an attempt to say like, they have to sort that out. I figured things out at that time. I didn't have it worked out. That's theirs to sort out. And I care about them. If I'm in that position of I care about them and I understand they're working some of this out, they're much more likely to come and say, what do you think about this? And you know, they're open to input. They know they haven't gotten it all worked out. But if you move into that condescending position you drive them into either not taking responsibility for their lives and going along or pushing against you, um, but not sorting out who they're going to be. Yeah. And I, so it sounds like it really just comes down to kind of a mutual respect. So if, if a conversation needs to be had where you have to say something like, Hey, I do feel like you're not listening to me, or maybe you think that I haven't thought about this. I have thought about this. Here's what I've thought. Um, and I, I do think also, you know, it may be an opportunity to set a boundary if they are not willing. I think it can be okay to also say, you know what, I, I am comfortable currently. You know, my views may change, but right now this, this is what we're going with. And that's, that's what we're doing. And, you know, generations always have differences of views. There's always like kids these days. I mean, that's just like a phrase, you know, because <laughs> I remember parents used to say things like that when I was a kid. And now I'm like, well, I will joke around and be like kids, like what's the matter with them these days? <laughs> but that's always there. You know, there's always that. But learning how to love, care and give kids, adult kids, the ability to sort out, especially who they're, how they make sense of, of life and reality it sets you up to still be an anchor point and a reference point for them that they still need, but not overstepping the line. Okay. I have one more question before we wrap up, because this one has just kind of been blowing my mind. I've just been thinking about it a lot. 
So obviously, you know, we've talked about how how modesty can be so beautiful and it's a it's a choice that you make. And, you know, I think sometimes we we associate it with, you know, wearing what you want. We've talked about clothes. It's really not just about that at all, but um it, it is often the main topic of conversation. And I have been thinking and I'm trying to remember if it was this last Olympics where there was a volleyball team and they decided that they didn't want to wear the traditional uniform and there was this big issue and I would love to talk about modesty from the point of functionality and not just sensuality because sometimes I'm like are we just living in a really really over sexualized society that you know you say you look at a male track athlete and his uniform is quite different than the women's and that's just the uniform that they're handed right like they don't necessarily always pick them out maybe they're comfortable maybe they're not that you know that's really for them but I just have thought about sometimes this confusing narrative that we get as women as yes we you want to be successful you want to be have a healthy body, do all these cool things, but you also have to look sexy doing it. And I think modesty can be about kind of separating that and being like, you know, I'm being an athlete right now. My, my sexiness really has nothing to do with this race that I'm running. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's exactly. So there's, let me do my best to articulate. So I think there is, even sometimes in the modesty rhetoric that's female focused, the same kind of objectification of the female form in either form, either be sexy or cover your sexuality, right? So there is often this, you know, do what makes me comfortable. And we often get into this split. Now, what I think Merritt's saying is that Lots of people like the feminine form. So what I mean to say about that is the feminine body represents beauty much more in our culture than the masculine body. Right? Masculine is functional. Feminine has an inherent beauty. Women's bodies are like a work of art, right? I think this was like a Seinfeld episode. Women's bodies are like a work of art. They're a masterpiece. Men's bodies are more like a Jeep. They're utilitarian. You know, <laughs> Nobody really wants to look at them, you know, right? Like, I think they were saying like good naked and bad naked, you know, men are sort of bad naked. And, so and well, there's a truth to that. Like I, you know, even if you think about what do people tend to look at, um, even women look at women's bodies because they are beautiful in all the variation that women's bodies are remarkably beautiful. So there is something to the female form that attracts us and attracts our attention and I don't think we need to be afraid of that or ashamed of that. And that's not necessarily inherently objectifying, right? So just as I would say, even if you think of men as, in, as naturally more utilitarian, like they provide, they, they serve, they fight, they do things often that serve society through action. Well, you can respect that and value that, or you can objectify it right? I need somebody to provide the money and the resources so I can have my life that I want. I mean, there's a lot of ways to use people. So the point is not necessarily the beauty of the feminine, right? Or the utility of the masculine. I know I'm speaking very, very broadly right now, but let's just go with it for a second. There's nothing wrong with the, some of the stereotypes that go along with that. It's whether or not we relate to it in this objectified using form. And so to your question, I think when we are saying cover it all up, pretend it's not there or work it and make it all sexy, both of those are a kind of objectification that isn't that, that lacks a respect. It's a use of another person. And so I think sometimes we overreact, you know, now I can wear whatever I want. doesn't matter. You have to deal. I mean, that's sort of an overreaction. I, I understand it. I understand why there's some reaction in our culture, given some of the, 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 the toxicity or the difficulty of some of these messages. But I think it's coming to a place of, you know, respecting human beings for who they are, what their gifts, what their strengths are but not using each other, not relating to each other as what 
uh, I think it was Kohut, would call a self-object, that when we are immature, we relate to other people as something that serves our egos, serves our pleasure, serves our comfort, but we don't relate to them as whole human beings. And that's, that's what it is to grow ourselves up in our sexuality, in our spirituality, in our ability to relate to one another as we see each other as whole people first and what our gifts are second. I love that. Well, that is what I have for today, but I would love for you to reference any resources that you would like people to go check out that you feel like are most that relate the best to kind of this topic. If they're curious, if they want to learn more. Sure. Well, probably the two resources that are the most on point would be my men's and women's. So I have a, I have five online courses. One of them is a women's self and sexual development course. My husband says nobody would know what that means. (laughs) What that means is (laughs) uh, I get so used to my own language, but what that is, is like how to develop a stronger sense of self and a more comfortable relationship to your body and your God-given sexuality and your desires as a person. So that's the art of desire course. And it, it references the idea of modesty, but how to be in this healthier, integrated relationship to your sexuality and who you and your personhood. And then I have a similar course for men called the art of loving. And this is also about understanding a lot of the cultural messages in both courses. I do this. What are the cultural messages that have often created fear, anxiety, entitlement, repression, whatever it is around sexuality that we can, um, you know, so that we can come into a healthier relationship to our sense of self and how we relate to our sexuality and another person through it. So those are the probably the two most related courses. And then, you know, I have my conversations with Dr. Jennifer podcast, which you can hear a lot of conversations like this. And then also a subscription podcast called Room for Two, where I'm actually working with couples around sex and intimacy issues and giving the feedback that I give when I'm working in private sessions with people about what is happening and what they can address and change to make their their most important relationships better. Perfect. Thank you. So definitely go check that out, all of you, all of you listeners. Um, but thank you for being with us, Jennifer, and thank you all for tuning in. Um, don't forget to rate and review. Go ahead and check Jennifer out on Instagram. Follow her resources. Listen to her podcast. You will not be sorry. Um, and I will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.